Complex problems demand complex solutions. While we would all love to have the silver bullet to solve a marital crisis, business challenge, Middle East peace, or in this case, climate change, the reality is that the solutions to these types of problems are usually multifarious, but related, and attack the problem from different directions. On today's episode of Raising Your Antenna, we are going to address the threat of climate change, but from a non-binary, non-zero-sum game, and a non-linear perspective. That's a long way of saying that there are third-way solutions that work, they can be win-win, and while progress may not be at the rate we hope, it will come as long as we are committed to the process. What we will learn today is that the technology solutions to carbon mitigation are numerous. Hint, it's not only about renewable energy and aerosol cans. That these solutions are proven and that they are experiencing widespread adoption. Adoption right now, even as I tape this. We will be introduced to terms, milestones, and trends such as circularity, reconomy, blue planet, and the closed loop partnership and hopefully we'll inject a note of optimism into a public conversation that has been both divisive and pessimistic. Guiding us on this journey today is Shauna Rappaport, Vice President and Executive Director of Verge at Greenbiz Group. For those of you unfamiliar with Verge, Verge is a leading platform for accelerating the clean economy, convening the world's largest companies, public sector leaders, utilities, and technology innovators to foster a diverse ecosystem of influencers advancing solutions at the intersection of technology and sustainability. Shauna has been evangelizing on behalf of the clean economy for more than a decade and has been spearheading Verge's efforts to reverse climate change since 2013. Back with Shauna in a bit. You're listening to Raising Your Antenna with host Keith Sackheim. Hi, Shauna. Welcome to Raising Your Antenna. I've been looking forward to this interview and uh, really excited about the conversation that we have in front of us today. Before we begin, please share your professional journey with our audience. I think people always are interested in, you know, successful people, how they got here. Uh, and, you know, what I always like to compare it to is, you know, looking at, uh, looking at um, an iceberg and, and really kind of, we only see what happens on top, never below the surface of the water and how one got there. So uh, we'd love to hear your story. That's a nice metaphor. Well, thank you, Keith. I'm delighted to be be joining you. Um, so, you know, interestingly, you you invoke water. My my professional journey, actually, um, at least my my journey of planetary stewardship, also started uh, in the water, in the ocean. My 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 path began at the age of seven, actually, when I fell in love with the ocean. Had one of those just story perfect moments uh, in life, like one of those catalytic experiences. I ended up falling in love with the ocean the same day that I ended up learning about global warming and climate change and it just activated in something within, within me and I, I never really turned back. So, um, you know, in even in high school and then in college, I got really involved in community organizing and campus leadership in my time at the University of Southern California, focused my studies on environmental science and environmental communication. And uh, after graduating,
graduating from the Annenberg School of Communication with a master's in, uh, in, in basically environmental communication, emphasis on sustainability and social change. I worked for a couple of years with an organization called the Bioneers, really focusing on um, sustainability education, getting sort of curriculum into high schools and into colleges. And then I, I actually had a, a sort of a life-changing experience participating in one of the very first cohorts of Al Gore's climate reality project back in, in 2011. And, you know, I'd been, I'd been passionate about you know, climate solutions and 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 being a an advocate and an activist in many ways, and went into this experience sort of thinking I was going to be coming out of it, you know, emboldened and ready to take on the world. And surprisingly, um, you know, not to uh, in some ways akin to to I think the the impact that an inconvenient truth had, which was of course profound and important in many ways. I came out of that four day training almost in a paralyzed state of despair um, and kind of had this aha awakening, like, man, it is actually not going to matter if we have generations of eco-literate young people, um, if there's literally no habitable planet or biosphere for them to live in. So I, I quit my job and just honestly, within a matter of weeks, got swooped up at GreenBiz, where I've now been working for about six and a half years um, to the, the, the mantra that I came up with coming out of that, that climate reality experience was that I wanted to be influencing influencers and really working inside the system and, and, and creating transformation from from the inside out and and that's what I'm up to these days at Greenbiz and and now running the Verge conference. Great and and you alluded to it in your in your opening remarks that what in some ways inspired you to get involved was um, somewhat of uh, a gloom and doom uh, perspective that uh, you had internalized based on maybe some of your initial interactions with with uh, you know climate change and the global warming conversation. And, and let's face it, I mean, negativity and predicted cataclysms, I think, is what moves the needle for media, certainly. And as such, the bulk of published stories about global warming and climate change and carbon emissions, you know, they pretend doom and gloom. Uh, so some, as someone who's been spearheading Green Biz's and Verge's efforts around climate change for seven years, uh, can you reflect on the progress that has been made and maybe add a dose of optimism into what currently is probably best characterized as a quagmire of pessimism. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in in many ways, I'm an I'm an optimist at heart, and 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 sort of self-identify as a solutionarian. Really, having chosen to focus my 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 career and 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 what I'm working to bring forth in the world, really focusing on solutions. But I'm not going to lie. I like most people who are awake and paying attention to what's happening in the world right now. I I navigate on a daily basis, um, you know, between the hope and despair, and you know, I think. One of the things doesn't that's really it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it seem like ninety percent of the world is more of a, a rip rip Van Winkle type of uh, sleeping right now through a lot of this? I mean, you say that you know people who are sentient probably are worried about these things, but it just seems like from the public discourse around this, not a lot of people are. Well, you know, I think a couple things about that. One, you look at 
mainstream media, which you mentioned, you know, over 80% of all mainstream media communications about climate, about global warming, are painting a picture of the future that we don't want. And yes, it's important and we have to talk about what's not working. But, you know, there's a really interesting um, phenomenon within sort of social psychology called the availability heuristic. And it's this idea that we are much more likely to create what we have more examples for. And so to the extent that mainstream media is painting pictures of this dystopian future, I mean, we know that fear, we've actually come to learn that fear doesn't work as a motivating factor. And so, you know, in our work at GreenBiz and with Verge, you know, yet we're we're actually stepping into a, a moment now of actually really owning and embracing that a, a big part of what we're we're working to address is climate change. But with Verge, for example, we talk about accelerating the clean economy. That is about the business and economic opportunities in addressing our environmental and social challenges um, as much as, as anything else. And, you know, the other thing I was going to say, too, is yeah, I think the tendency towards, you know, you asked, uh, give us hope why, why all isn't lost. And, you know, I think it's important to remember that our tendency to think in binaries and in, in terms of winning or losing and even around climate and, and the environment, this tendency towards uh, sort of war based models, the fight and winning and losing, you know, there's we're already losing a lot. And, you know, sometimes I, I really sit with the fact that things are, are, things are likely going to get a lot worse for a lot of people before they start getting better. And so what's kind of being called upon us now is this ability to expand our perspective, expand our ability to hold both the dystopian potential and the utopian potential. And remember that, you know, every action that we take every day is, uh, is really, going to be what's what's determining the future that unfolds and you know the 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 reality is and what we're tracking at greenbiz is that there is an incredible awakening happening in the private sector both as the urgency but again especially as the business opportunities of decarbonizing our energy systems electrifying our transportation systems electrifying everything that we can electrify you know reimagining and redesigning um you know our products and our services um you know the the signals are incredibly exciting you've seen the cost curves decreasing and the adoption curves increasing whether it's you know solar storage EVs. I think just recently the the m most recent headline I saw is that now in the U.S. it's it's official. New wind and solar is is now cheaper than coal in most of the U.S. And so you know means that we need to 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 move fast um, in in uh, really accelerating these technologies and accelerating these markets. Um, but you know I am hopeful that the that the economics and the the awakening are are on our side. Yeah, and you know, when when you mention uh, maybe that we have this flawed um, framework of, of making it a binary type of situation where we either winning or losing, I, I think that that actually, um, you know, when I reflect on that, it, it brings to mind, um, and I'm not going to attribute this properly, so I won't try, but an idea that I heard um, about uh, the contrast between finite games and infinite games and, and a finite game is, is kind of like a sporting event where there's rules and there's a clock and there's, you know, adversaries and someone's going to win and someone's going to lose. And then you have infinite games, uh, which, you know, one could say is in general life, right? Like you live life, you're going to go up, you know, you're going to go up and down. You don't really have somebody you're competing against. It's more about your own narrative. And most importantly, the only person that can take you out of the game is yourself. 
um, and life will go on without you as well. And the challenges in life, and you get into difficult situations when you try to play an infinite game as a finite player. And I think, you know, in terms of what you were talking about, it makes me think that when you look at climate change um, and you look at the measures we're going to take, we can't have a finite game mentality when really we're talking about an infinite game. And if you look at the, 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 the short-term losses and or even you look at them short-term trends as losses versus you know a process um, and incremental successes and wins and within the context of this being an infinite game i think that actually can add a, a dose of optimism as opposed to if we look at it as a finite game in which one can win and lose so anyway uh, you kind of no i totally agree that. and and have to give a, a, a shout out to one of my personal muses and inspirations, Buckminster Fuller, who is one of the greatest design scientists of, I think, all of humanity. He's you know most well known for inventing the geodesic dome. He was a prolific, prolific inventor. And Bucky, you know, back in um, back in the day, invented this this world game, which was based on this principle, basically flipping this tendency to think in the zero sum game mentality, and actually helped to perpetuate an understanding that just of the interconnectedness of all life, and that actually it isn't about a you or me world, but it's a you and me world, and that when when I win you win and we all win. And, and that's, I think, a huge part of the mentality that we need to be be uh, embracing in these times. Yeah, Sean, you and I could talk about this forever because, you know, uh, <laughs> one, of, one of my, you know, one of my things in life is all about non-zero sumness versus zero sumness. And Robert Wright is, is one of my favorite kind of philosophers when it comes to this kind of stuff. So that's, you know, I'm not going to, this could be a long diversion in our chat. So we'll get back to the subject at hand. But but yes, um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, okay. So let's let's get this, as I said, let's get back to the subject at hand. And, and you know, within the climate change community, there's been a shift to thinking about carbon mitigation. And I know in that spirit, Verge recently launched uh, Verge Carbon. Uh, and you know, when most people think about approaches to carbon mitigation, they immediately associate clean energy generation as the most effective short-term solution. And it's actually, you know, it's funny. I, I was at a dinner probably, I don't know, about a year ago in which the icebreaker was um, somebody asked everybody to talk about their favorite carbon, carbon mitigation technology and almost 90% were around some type of, you know, generation or storage type of thing. Uh, but anyway, you know, I, 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 but the reality is that clean energy generation and those types of things is not n enough. And, and let's, so let's start with the carbon tech industry and unpack its inherent promise. I know that you're excited about carbon capture as a complement to carbon mitigation. Uh, so, so why are you so excited about a space that candidly, when I started working in the clean tech field about 15 years ago, terms like capture and sequestration were considered to be pipe dreams at best and snake oil at worst. So I wanna understand that a little more. And then as a follow-up, which capture approaches and methodologies from your perspective are the most exciting, proven and near term? Yeah, well, you know, you make a great point and I can share anecdotally. I, I think it's worth just taking a minute to to really level set because this whole world of call it carbon removal, call it negative emissions, call it climate positive. There's, I mean, that's a whole separate conversation about how we talk about this emerging landscape, this emerging, what what we talk about it at Green Biz as the new carbon economy. But, uh, you know, at the, at the last 
several uh, Green Biz events, I've actually hosted some private breakfasts um, in the mornings, bringing together a really diverse group of folks re representing food and ag, oil and gas, um, you know, the electronics industry. We've had large, large companies in the room to have a conversation about carbon removal to understand how is your company thinking about it? And, you know, every time, both surprisingly and unsurprisingly, people are thinking in terms of emissions reduction. When they hear carbon, when they hear mitigation, they think about emissions reduction. And that is different from what we're talking about and what I'm really excited about in this carbon removal space, which is actually sequestering emission, excess emissions in the atmosphere and either storing it, capturing it and storing it or turning it into valuable new materials, products or services. And, and that's really what Verge Carbon is about, is about, you know, the rest, we, we produce four conferences concurrently as part of our Verge event, Verge Energy and Verge Transport, really focus on the decarbonization of our energy systems, on the electrification of our transportation systems and, and much more, of course, Verge Circular, we'll get into some of the circular stuff in a bit. But Verge Carbon is really focused on the removal of excess emissions already in the atmosphere. And why this is so important and why I'm so excited to see, you know, increasingly the mainstream talking about this is because the science now, I mean, starting with the IPCC report last year and more and more reports are, are making explicitly clear that we literally cannot meet, let alone exceed the, the targets outlined by Paris, keeping ourselves, frankly, under two degrees, let alone 1.5, without focusing on, on carbon removal. And already there are, you know, hundreds of companies that are, are really focusing on this problem. You know, oil and gas is, is really starting to double down on this. And, um, but, but many others as well, construction and, and the opportunity to take that excess carbon uh, and turn it into new new materials, concretes, building uh, materials is is very very exciting. And you know, the the last thing I would just say too about it is, you know, there, there's really two major financial and policy instruments at play right now. One is the 45Q federal tax credit that um, was rolled out in the last couple of years, which basically provides incentives to companies that are seeking to invest in certain sequestration processes. And then there's uh, California's low carbon fuel standards. These are really the only two major instruments in play right now. And already they have massively changed the economics of, of carbon removal technologies. And so when we think about the, 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 um, likely and hopefully uh, impending increase in some of those policy and, and, and financial instruments, I think um, there's just, an, and we're likely to see an incredible explosion of investment in the technologies and, and, and an increase in, in their adoption as well. Great. And just to ex maybe add one more uh, question to this or to expand a little bit, what does it look like in the developing world where I know that, um, you know, us in, in, in the West, you know, we tend to forget that there's a larger world who are emitting lots of carbon as well, but with economies and um, the ability to adopt solutions maybe behind ours. So, so what does that look like? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think when we think about the transition to the clean, the clean economy in general, there's enormous opportunities for, you know, what I sort of think of as leapfrogging, right? You look at ICT and, and the, the adoption of, of cell phones, right? I mean, in, in, in India, in, in Africa, we just saw complete leapfrog from, um, from landlines and, and, and uh, uh, centralized networks into distributed ones. And so when we think about the, the transition to clean energy, for example, I think there's tremendous opportunities there. But but carbon removal too can create huge opportunities, particularly in in rural regions that have a lot to benefit from. I mean, looking at at, at ways in which regenerative agriculture and and um, creating new infrastructure that can actually mitigate emissions in those local economies is is huge. I mean, there's now I think concrete uh, is is one space that I'm really excited about concrete in and of itself, which is made of cement and which is, it is one of the largest emitters. Now, not only are they creating carbon neutral concrete, but there's actually negative emissions. This gets back to the language piece. Do we call it carbon negative, carbon positive, climate positive, but the opportunity to deploy these kinds of technologies in emerging markets um, is is really significant and something that I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic we're going to see particularly as the right policies and incentives and, and um, investments in these technologies increase so that the, the, um, the cost curves and cost parity goes down. Great. Okay. Let's dive into circularity, uh, which conveniently. Oh, wait. I just yep. want to, I just quickly, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to address your, the second piece of your question, which is sort of like, you know, what are some of the actual approaches and methodologies, which I think is an important piece. Yes, of this. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Thanks. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. So there's there's sort of, I mean, in a way, there's two main categories. So one, you know, there's we think about carbon tech and and the tendencies to think about, you know, the the actual technology. So direct air capture, I think, is one of the most important for people to know about and be tracking. You know, this is basically a, a, a technology that scrubs CO two directly out of the atmosphere. It's usually sited on site at the generation source for power plants or industrial facilities, and and you know, in in the past. The, the 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 economics just haven't played out for this but just in the last year, we're starting to see really compelling progress. And a lot of this is coming from major investment from oil and gas, Oxy Petroleum, Chevron are making major investments. The most recent one is in carbon engineering, which I think is based in, in British, British Columbia. It's going to be the largest DAC uh, direct air capture facility to date. And it's really bringing down the costs of those technologies. There's, there's other interesting and emerging ones around seawater capture. You know, the U.S. Navy is investing in some of that, um, you know, enhanced weathering. Um, but the other piece that's just really important we that is frankly a technology is the technology that nature has been using successfully for, you know, 4.8 billion years or however long life has existed on, on this planet, which is photosynthesis. And, you know, there's forests, which, you know, that has to do with both preventing deforestation, which is something that large companies are definitely thinking about across their supply chains. But there's also uh, sort of food and ag. So farms, I mean, just in the last uh, couple of weeks, General Mills, one of the largest food producers in the world, has now committed by 2030 to driving regenerative agriculture on a hundred on a million acres um, just in the next in the next 10 years and so um, 
you know, regenerative agriculture as a practice, the ability to basically, some people call it carbon farming, uh, uh, basically restoring and rebuilding the carbon content in our topsoil, which agriculture has been just hugely destructive in in so many ways, um, the potential to turn that problem into a solution and actually not only sequester more carbon in the soil, but oh, by the way, increased water retention, increased productivity of crops is, um, is a really exciting part of the, the sort of carbon, new carbon economy that we're tracking and we'll be covering as part of our Verge, Car uh, Verge Carbon uh, Conference as well. Okay, great, yeah. Uh, let's dive into circularity, uh, which conveniently I know is the name of Green Biz's most recently convened conference, Circularity 2019, and from what I understand, it was a great success, so congratulations. Um, you know, the closed loop partnership, which, as I understand it, is a consortium of brands, academia, municipalities, investors, you know, who collaborate on innovative circular solutions for products, services, and technology. Uh, you know, they've staked out a leadership role in spearheading uh, a genuine viable circular economy. Um, so first question is why here, why now, right? So I'm always fascinated from just a historical perspective is, you know, why why in 2019 are we at this inflection point? Um, that's A. And then kind of what's motivating the public-private NGO investment sectors to get serious about it? Um, and again, maybe why today as opposed to 10 years ago or whatever? Yeah. Well, just to be clear, so when we talk about circularity, and I'll give Joel McCower of Green Biz um, credit for this. He, I think, came up with this a couple of years ago. What we're really talking about is keeping molecules in play, right? We have created eco and economies that are based on a truly linear take-make-waste system. And so for companies and now cities and regions too, as we're looking at what does it actually mean to be transforming and operating in a truly circular economy, this means everything from the polymer level all the way to products and services and the logistics and manufacturing, it's remanufacturing, it's repair, it's refurbishment, it's entirely new business models of you know products as a service um, as opposed to ownership. It's, it's really about keeping keeping materials in play, in, in play. And I think a part of this, and this came up last week at our, at our uh, Circularity 19 event, which was a tremendous success in its first year, a completely sold out event. We had over 800 people, 850 people there representing mostly, mostly large companies, including again, everyone from the plastics and polymers players to the large companies that are recognizing the huge opportunities in the circular economy. You know, when I think about the, the why here and now, you know, our, our lead partners on the event and, and in many ways, I think the leading NGO in the space, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, they presented at Davos in 2016, a report that basically level set the ocean plastics problem. And they they were the ones, I don't know if you've heard of this, I'm sure many have this, this glaring statistic that by 20, 2050, we're on track to the, there potentially being more plastics by weight in the ocean than fish. And just to take a minute to let that sink in, more plastic in the ocean by weight than fish by 2050. And that was, that was. That, that's an evolutionary shocking. trend that I think uh, Darwin would never have been able, wouldn't have been able to predict for sure. 
Right. Talk about the evolution of our species. Uh, You know, we we can do a lot, a lot better. And so I think the combination of that with, you know, honestly, in many ways, you know, I think Blue Planet, the launch of Blue Planet and the 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 public awareness, it wasn't even their intention with that series. But there were a couple of episodes where there were, you know, just striking images. And you have seen now the viral videos of the turtles with the sh- with the straws up their nose and the you know poor baby seals with the with the the six pack rings around their necks and this is becoming an emotional issue for people because there's there we're able to connect to it i think in a way that frankly it's really hard to connect to climate change or global warming conceptually um and you know, so so I think consumer awareness and awakening. I think the values-driven uh, nature of millennials is is a key piece of it. But you know, for companies, it's it's really about risk. You know, they know no matter what industry they're operating in, electro from plastics to electronics, automotive, they they know that their models are are not sustainable from a growth perspective. There's simply not enough raw materials nor the societal permission to to continue generating more pollution, pollution or waste. And and so there's a huge business opportunity in recapturing and reusing those materials, keeping them keeping them in play. And so whether it's you know risk across supply chains um, of operating in a climate and resource constrained world, um, I think that's a big part of why we're seeing companies waking up and 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 the economics are really starting to play out the new business models um of of new products and services are are increasingly compelling and i think the success of our circularity 19 event last week if it's any indicator it shows that the private sector is really waking up to the um not just the urgency but the but the business opportunities in this as well Okay, and let's kind of maybe bring this down to to a contemporary example. And you know, so Patagonia's brand and media coverage consistently stresses a sustainable image, whether it's sustainable materials, working conditions, um, material sourcing, resource sourcing. Patagonia is adept at projecting that brand. And recently, Patagonia made a decision, uh, which is in the news, uh, that they're going to refuse to manufacture their trendy, uh, trendy branded vest. For companies that they don't feel embody and signal Patagonia values, so Patagonia's most recent focus is around uh, re-commerce, as, as as it's called, I think, and other companies, uh, REI and Eileen Fisher, are following suit. Can you speak to this trend uh, and what the future holds for other consumer goods companies that are starting to feel the pressure to embrace a corporate sustainable image? Yeah, well, there are a number of really exciting trends within the the circular economy space and we're we're covering them extensively at greenbiz so if you're curious about them definitely check out uh, greenbiz.com recommerce i think is one of the most exciting ones and i and i actually want to push back a little bit because recommerce in and of itself is is not actually about image it's it's really about the business opportunity in tapping in in tapping into new markets. And in fact, you know, a lot of the companies that are are starting to you know dip their toes in recommerce commerce are actually concerned about the risk to their images. I don't think it's about having a sustainable image. There is real risk. They're concerned that putting uh, 
you know, used products into the marketplace is going to cannibalize sale of their new products, that there is going to be a lack of trust about the, um, the quality. So, you know, we're really only just starting to see major, major brands, and you named a couple of them, REI, Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, that are, are dipping their toes into this. But, you know, re-commerce in general, I, I think apparel and fashion is really leading the way in this. You know, the secondary retail apparel in general, I, I think it's something like it's a $20 billion industry in and of itself. It's projected to grow 15% annually over the next five years. Resale is growing 25 times the traditional uh, retail and um, and e-commerce markets. So, you know, brands are recognizing that they can re- they can make a margin on selling the same garment garment multiple times, and also tapping in tapping into new markets. Um, you know, we had at our at our event last week, Andy Andy Rubin of Yertle Recommerce and Eileen Fisher REI in conversation, and there's really interesting models that are are emerging. Yertle is one example. There are other startups emerging in the space. Renew workshop, thread up, stuffster, and others that are, are, it's basically white label um, service models where, you know, companies like Eileen Fisher and Patagonia can basically have customers return used goods for store credit. And then, you know, Yertle, for example, will repair and refurbish those goods so that apparel companies can sell them again and, and as refurbished under their own brands, you know, warranties, customer service, and all, and it's it's opening up whole new markets, particularly because I think both conscious consumers, but but also those who just want lower price points, um, can 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 tap into tap into these products. You know, there's a there's a new generation of buyers that are frankly less enamored with new stuff. They just want good stuff. They want it at bargain prices. If you know if they care about values and reuse, it's again, it's I think really as much about tapping into new markets um, as anything. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and thank you for that. Uh, and, you know, Shana, thank you for um, your insights and observations uh, about all the different things we spoke about today. Uh, we're coming up against, uh, you know, what generally is our is our time limit for the podcast. Um, so you know, if we can end with any last words uh, of advice um, uh, or anything that maybe has been unsaid that you don't want to leave unsaid uh, about the topic at hand today, as well as any uh, recommendations, uh, uh, book recommendations, uh, books that maybe um, have contributed to your professional development, personal development, intellectual development, what have you. Uh, So I'll give you the floor. Thanks. Well, on the book front um, I'll start I'll start with the easy one I can I can name two top of mind so um, for those of you who haven't uh, uh, heard about drawdown or project drawdown um, I had the privilege of being very involved in that project from from its inception it was co-founded by um, Paul Hawken and Amanda Joy Ravenhill um, and and we basically looked at the top 100 solutions to reverse global warming and did the most comprehensive research project to date with a um, global coalition of fellows to actually map, measure, and model uh, the the front-end investment, return on investment, years to scale, and metric gigatons of carbon reduced as a result of basically getting these solutions to scale uh, in the next 30 years. And, you know, I think you, we, we started this conversation about hope and optimism. What we found in that project is that Drawdown 
is possible. Drawdown basically refers to, you know, you see the the curves, the emission curves. Um, drawdown basically refers to the point in the future at which greenhouse gas concentrations peak and then actually begin to decline on a year-to-year basis. And I'm so proud of what we did with that project because it made these solutions accessible to people in a way. I have to say it's a fantastic gift or a coffee book, um, coffee table book, because it, it takes each of these solutions and just helps you understand the the science behind them, the culture behind them, the markets behind them, and what it actually will take to, to, to scale them. So that, that would be one topic. And then I'm also in the final stages right now of reading a book called A Finer Future, um, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. It's by, by Hunter Lovins, um, uh, and she had a number of collaborators. And um, it's a really beautiful, I mean, it talks a lot about um, the sort of the technologies behind the clean economy, the rise of solar and batteries and EV and autonomous vehicles. But it, it really looks at um, what it means to be like, it's kind of a, a meta picture of stepping back. Why, why does business exist? What is it actually in service of? And what does it mean to be creating institutions and systems that are actually regenerative and, and in service to life? So I'm, I'm, I'm in the, I got a, a quarter left of the book to go, but it's been a great read so far and, and I would recommend it. Um, Fantastic. You know, you know, it's fun. Well, one of the books I'm just ac- actually about finishing this summer is, uh, or this week, I should, I should say, is a book called The Future of Capitalism uh, by Paul Collier. Um, and in there, he has a, a whole chapter about, uh, you know, the ethical firm or the ethical company. And I think it's probably s- relates to some of the things that you were just addressing in, in that book. So, yeah. Well, I guess I guess for closing remark, I mean, there's so many so many different things that I would I would say, but I would be remiss not to do a, a shameless plug for our our Verge event this fall. We'll be entering into our ninth year, which is amazing. We're expecting over three thousand people um, at Verge nineteen in October, and you know. There's, again, to the beginning of this conversation, it's so easy to to kind of fall victim to the doom and gloom. And, you know, I feel just so privileged to wake up every morning in, in and it is literally my job to track and understand what's what's working, what's going right, and how we can accelerate the technologies, the policies, and the markets. Um, and, and, you know, a big thing about Verge, sort of our core theory of change is, you know, it started actually being about the convergence of technologies, the way ICT and energy and building and transportation technologies were converging and radically disrupting industries. But I I like to say that it's it's actually as much about the convergence of people across otherwise siloed industries and sectors. And I think that's really one of the most important things that no matter what industry or what markets you're operating in, the, the tendency to operate in our silos and, you know, think I work in solar or I'm working in, in smart cities, but to actually step back and look at where, where are the convergent opportunity? That's, that is really how we uh, create systems change. And, um, you know, I think that is such a critical piece of what's, what's needed right now, both from a planetary perspective, but it's also where these enormous business opportunities and as well as environmental and, and social opportunities are really going to be unlocked as well. Yeah, and I can attest and confirm to uh, Shauna's uh, description of the conference. I, I've been to Verge at least three or four times. I've always found it to be uh, incredibly rewarding in terms of uh, an, uh, an opportunity to form for learning. Uh, 
an opportunity uh, for meeting really interesting people who are working on meaningful things. Uh, so I couldn't recommend it more highly. Uh, you know, we'll we'll have somebody uh, from our agency there this year, and and we also are always encouraging our clients uh, in 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 the energy technology world and the uh, mobility world to attend the conference. Um, and uh, anyway, so so. Uh, looking forward to that this year, Shana. And, um, you know, uh, this is now, I think, our 20th or 21st episode. And, and uh, they're all, them, you know, each one has been uh, interesting and uh, and rewarding. I think one of the things that really comes across, uh, Shana, when you, when you speak is just, um, you know, your passion and your commitment uh, and your uh, just, uh, you know, that this is a vocation for you, not, not just a job. Uh, and um, anyway, so thank you for sharing your thoughts uh, and your ideas and observations uh, about um, about our planet uh, and about where we're headed. Uh, and look forward to seeing you soon and catching up. Well, thank you so much for having me, Keith. I feel like we only just scratched the surface on on so much of this. So um, look forward to hopefully having the opportunity to talk more about non-zero sum games with you at some point in the future. And um, yeah, thanks again so much for having me. And another episode of Raising Your Antenna is in the books. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and look forward to connecting again next week. Raising Your Antenna is a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, Keith Zakheim, that features the movers and shakers and key influencers of the B2B technology industry. Our guests are leading revolutions and disruptions in the mobility, clean energy, healthcare, and real estate technology industries. Raising Your Antenna is brought to you by Antenna Group, a full-service digital marketing and public relations agency that focuses on the B2B technology industry. Please be in touch with me on Twitter at czackheim with any feedback about this podcast. And check out Antenna Group at www.antennagroup.com if your organization is looking for a really smart and good-looking marketing and public relations partner.